Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Dr. Julie Pones, who has a PhD in philosophy with areas of specialization in ethics and ancient philosophy. She has a master's in philosophy with collaborative specialization in bioethics from the University of Toronto and a diploma in ethics from the Kennedy Institute of Ethics at Georgetown University. Dr. Pones has published in the areas of ancient philosophy, ethical theory, and applied ethics, and has taught at universities in Canada and the U.S. for 20 years. In the fall of 2021, Dr. Pones saw her academic career of 20 years fall apart after she refused to comply with a Canadian university COVID vaccine mandate. In response, Dr. Pones recorded a special video directed to her first-year ethics students, and that video went viral. Since the release of that video, Dr. Pones has joined the Democracy Fund as the ethics scholar focusing on educating the public on civil liberties. In December 2021, Julie Pones released a book published by the Democracy Fund entitled My Choice, The Ethical Case Against COVID-19 Vaccine Mandates, where she shares her personal story and examines the ethical and philosophical dimensions of the pandemic response. I welcome Julie Pones to Savage Minds. I read in the intro your story briefly, but I want to go back to what is the field of ethics? And I asked because your particular situation is paradoxical, given that many of us have been asked to participate in an ethical fraud related to the pandemic and to the pandemic response, I should say, because your particular situation is paradoxical in the sense that you're a specialist in ethics, but like many of us, we've been asked collectively to participate in an ethical fraud related to the pandemic response. And this goes from lockdown to masks, the social isolation that lockdown involved. It was a domestic prison lasting for those of us in many countries like Italy and Melbourne, Australia, years. And it involved cruel quarantines. It involved illegal barred access, as we found out today with the court ruling in Victoria, that people who were not allowed out, out of their homes in Melbourne to go shopping, were violated their human rights. And now, okay. in recent years, in recent months, the COVID-19 vaccine, people who have lost their livelihoods because they said, I am not taking this. So I'm asking you what the field of ethics is and mm -hmm. if you can go from that general definition to the paradox of what has happened to you and to all of us in many ways. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for that setup. There's a lot to unpack there. So we can start with, with what ethics is. And I mean, I think what we've been asked to do over the last two years is very simple. We've been asked not to think. We've been asked not to act as rational beings, not to actualize the one thing that makes human beings unique in the world in relation to non-human animals, plants, minerals, anything else. Um, so we've been asked to act in inhuman ways. And not only have we been asked to do that, but we have made being unthinking into a virtue. And by contrast, the people who desire to think, who demand evidence, who dare to ask questions are demonized as being not only the non-virtuous, but the cancerous sores on the rest of society that is expected to operate in lockstep. 
ethics as a branch of philosophy, the essence of which is logic and critical thinking is the antithesis of all of that, right? So what, what we do in ethics is try to apply the tools of critical thinking to practical situations that have a moral dimension to them, things that involve harm, things that involve uh, virtues and vices, things like courage and integrity and generosity on the one hand, and cowardice and malice and stinginess and evil on the other hand. And we try to understand Sometimes I think we get the false impression that ethics is about what we are allowed to do, as though we have to identify what the rules are for meeting some kind of bare minimum or some kind of threshold, and that as long as we do that, then we're, we have sort of carte blanche to get away with anything else that we want to do. But ideally, ethics is about how to live as well as possible, trying to figure out what the good life is, as Aristotle tried to do in the very first book of his main ethical treatise, the Nicomachean Ethics. He tried to figure out well, what is the good life anyway? And he says it's about what he called eudaimonia. It's a kind of human flourishing or what we might translate loose, loosely as happiness. And for him, and I think he's right about this, I'm, I'm a, um, <laughs> you know, an, an unabashed, hardcore Aristotelian. I think he's right that if we're going to live well, if we're going to flourish as humans, which I do not think we are doing now, but if we're to do that, we need to be virtuous. And virtue is a kind of excellent activity of the soul. And that's a complicated matter. It has to do with intellectual virtues, like being honest and being diligent and being curious and being careful in one's thinking. But it also has to do with the moral virtues that have to do largely with um, figuring out what the appropriate emotional response is to stimuli that come at us from the world. And we've basically been asked by our governments, by our institutions, by our medical colleges, by big business, by our friends and family, not to do any of that, right? <laughs> Pretty much. And if you do <laughs> go there, and we've all been in that position, I remember when it first happened to me, I was in Italy when lockdown happened. We were the first mm. country after China to go into this. And I went on Facebook and I told everyone, things are getting real. Be very careful. Listen, me, I said this, God, I can shoot mm -hmm. myself now. I said, listen to what, you know, you're being told to do because it looks like this virus is extremely dangerous. Skip to ah. two weeks later right. when I said, <laughs> the information we're being given doesn't it's add dangerous up. right <laughs> and someone said but i thought you said and i said yes i act on information now we're getting new information and i can read mm. they, we were scaremongered basically and we were mm -hmm. told to arrest our freedoms and when people say freedoms you know this is what kills me now i'm on the left i'm very much on the left but when you tell people who vote for like democrats in the u.s that mm. you're a leftist, they think Democrats are leftists. Oh, well, that's another mm -hmm. podcast in itself. They're not really, but the, mm -hmm. they are further to the left in some ways, but they're mm -hmm. definitely not on this because the paradox is that with lockdown, the people fighting for human rights, where that was the domain, it was the domain of the left for many years in terms of anti-war action, 
to freedom of choice to, exactly to liberate humans rights to be gay in x or y country uh, mm -hmm. that women cannot iron their breasts and still be employed or leave the house without a husband's permission blah 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 no these mm -hmm. were the people this quote unquote left but they're not they're a neoliberal left it, a neoliberal meaning my bank account's good F you, all of you, you locked down, you know? So that's what we're talking about. The class of people that, the Clintonites in a sense, because a lot of the mm. Democrats are completely unaware of the fact that they are of the party of the nouveau riche because the working classes, the people affected by lockdowns, and, and I'm not saying working classes means you don't have a college education or even a PhD. I know loads of people with advanced degrees who are barely scraping it together. A mm -hmm. lot of, we know this. And possibly a, more so. Well, yes, because the pajama mm -hmm. class is a certain mm -hmm. type of class. The pajama class, when they refer to that, and when I talk about it, there are two pajama classes in the sense. There's the pajama class that's getting its paycheck all through lockdown, and there's the pajama class of people who are scrambling to get their freelance work together. Because how do you get freelance work together when it's all come crashing down? And the first outlet of money that will not be spent on freelancers is coming from all those businesses where everyone's getting salaries in their bank accounts every week. So mm -hmm. I don't, no one's really talked about how freelancers have been affected by lockdown, but it's a huge hurt and it's a large demographic all over the West. Meanwhile, mm. people were saying, you know, lockdown, baby, lockdown. And I remember when I first started saying this, so people said, but d didn't you say, and I'm like, you have to understand I have a brain, I read, I think. I will always change course if new information contradicts that course I was on, obviously. And yet, mm -hmm. Julie, you saw this too. People were unable to change direction. Once those signals of fear went up and don't touch doorknobs, don't breathe, stand one meter or six feet or what have you, people were really willing to do it and to smile almost as if they were wanting the cameras to catch them doing it so they could say, see, I'm good. It was odd. It was a kind of virtue signaling during a pandemic. It's still going on here, by the way. Well, we should, let's, can we talk about fear for a little bit? Because I think this is so interesting and such a key to why we have been unable to identify our mistakes, recognize them as mistakes, recognize that that's not, I mean, mistakes are, we can call them a human failing, and I suppose they are in some sense, but they're perfectly natural in virtue of the fact that we are not, um, we are not omnipotent beings, humans. They're inevitable. They're going to happen. So if we can, if we are in principle incapable of identifying, acknowledging, and then coming to terms with them, we are always going to be at odds with ourselves in some way. But just to dive into a little bit more about what fear does to us. We know from 50 plus years of neuropsychological research that fear can alter our capacities for critical thinking and emotional regulation and can even uh, be used to shift us away from existing beliefs and commitments and habits. And it does this in a number of ways. One thing it does is it affects how we perceive the world. And probably 
you know, for those of you who are listening, you can probably relate to this, you know, when fear is a very bombarding feeling, it taxes, I mean, the immune system, literally, we know from a fight, fight or flight response that it, it, you have to amass all of your psychological and physiological resources to cope with fear. But I think more um, colloquially, just that feeling of being overwhelmed and bombarded, we aren't at our best when we're in a fearful state, right? And a fearful person is really a myopic person. When we're in a state of fear, we're only able to process visually some parts of our environment and only uptake a limited amount of new information. And that makes sense because we're we're already overtaxed, we're already overburdened. So if we've been put into this state on March, uh, what was the date? Uh, when did the World Health Organization announce the pandemic? Was it the 20th of March? I forget. March 2020 right? And as you say, we were told there is this deadly virus that's going to kill, what was the estimate, 3.2% of the population, something like that. And you need to stop your lives, change all of your habits so that you and your loved ones and others don't succumb and die a horrible death from this virus. That is not a state you put someone in where they're able to rationally, comprehensively assess and weigh that information. So when we're in a state of fear, we tend to be very myopic thinkers. We can only say, understand, well, first hear, and then understand and process things like case numbers, ICU numbers, because that fits with what we've been told to be afraid of. And other information like, you don't need to worry about that as much, that the virus affects people only in significant ways with comorbidities or the elderly, or that there are waves and subsequent waves are less severe than earlier waves. It barely affects children. I mean, and then of course, you know, not to mention the whole can of worms to do with the pharmaceutical companies and collusion and regulatory capture and all of that. But another thing fear does is it inclines us toward pessimism to be excessively focused on the likelihood that some catastrophe is going to happen in the future, which makes us feel like anything we do is futile right? And it lowers our confidence in our ability to reason our way out of a problem. So if we're terribly afraid, we feel pessimistic about the future, we feel that the worst is inevitable, why would we put or be able to put a lot of mental resources into figuring out how to get ourselves out of that state of fear? Another thing fear does is that it affects how we relate to other people. So the more, the, the greater the state of fear we are in, the more suspicious we are, the less trusting we are, the more susceptible we are to a savior stepping in. So in Canada, our transportation minister frequently said in our House of Commons, every this very simple statement, everything we have done over the last two years is to keep you safe. And we believe that because we, we, we desire this panacea in the form of a savior that acts as a surrogate for us having to do any of the work to get out of the situation that we are now incapacitated to be able to do, right? <laughs> and then and then finally, and this is maybe the most interesting one, is that fear is addictive. We love fear in certain contexts, in certain doses, when we pay for it in the movie theater on Halloween, <laughs> right? And at amusement parks, we love it in certain uh, sort of circumscribed, nicely packaged, culturally acceptable doses. 
And there are a lot of physiological reasons for this. When we're afraid, the brain sends signals to the adrenal glands to release adrenaline into the bloodstream, causing, among other things, an adrenaline rush to which we can become addicted. Of course, there are thresholds beyond which, I mean, if someone's really coming at you with three knives running down a dark alley, uh, we're probably not going to pay for that experience anymore, right? Because it's past the threshold of pleasure. But there is that sweet spot where we're just afraid enough to produce just enough adrenaline that's like... You know, if you're addicted to coffee or um, chocolate or, or cigarettes or whatever it is, there's that sweet spot of addiction that you just keep going back for more and more. And fear um, feeds that contrary to what we might think. I think if you ask most people, they would say, well, I hate being afraid. I, I want peace in my life. I want calm. I want security. Well, we do. But we also don't want boring lives. We want to feel alive. And being afraid is a state in which our senses um, and the nerves that underpin those senses so the nervous system response that underpins that emotional experience is is vibrating in a state of fear and, and we like something about that because we feel our humanity we feel our liveliness right absolutely and people i noticed were not only unable to get out of that fear they couldn't reset they mm -hmm. were unwilling to take in new information, which is this kind of self-serving narrative. They can reinforce the fear by refusing to listen to new information. And of course, there were all those set answers to new information, conspiracy theorist, anti-vaxxer, even before the vax was being developed, you know, people would just accuse you of all sorts of nonsense for saying, but why have they closed the schools? Why are they not concerned about everyone's mental health. It's not just mm -hmm. the mental health of the children. And if I have to be honest, I think the mental health of adults has been devastated by this. I know more mm -hmm. adults with severe mental health issues than I do children. Even if one of my children has suffered, he's coming out of it. In many countries, I'm talking to therapists and psychiatrists who are telling me about the very high number of cases, for instance, of agoraphobia. People are afraid mm -hmm. to leave homes. They're afraid to touch people. They're afraid to be near people. Now, we knew this early on because many commentators said these governments have to be careful about locking down too well because it's going to be very hard to unlock. We had so much interesting there on the topic of agoraphobia. I mean, we were already, I think, pre-pandemic, pre-March 2020, we were already inclining ourselves towards an agoraphobic culture because we locked ourselves in our little personal screens. And mm -hmm. the more you do that, the more you develop the skills to do that well, the less you're developing true public sphere kinds of social skills. And I saw, I mean, as a university, you know, I taught for 20 years at universities in Canada and the US, and I certainly saw this among our students. And when I first started teaching, the students I got had not been raised in the technological era in the sense that they weren't, they weren't. Um, you know, watching movies in the car when they were five years old. And then by the time I got them later on, they they certainly were, depending on their particular up upbringing, but they were, for the most part, raised with cell phones and tablets and movies in their vehicles. And um, they were terrible. They had terrible social anxiety. They do have terrible social anxiety. They didn't know how to address each other their professors, they had no idea what respect in written and spoken word looked like. They had no idea how to ask a question in class. I mean, we were pretty 
incapacitated socially and on, I think, the verge of agoraphobia before all of this happened. My goodness, you add the fear component, you add the lack of practice, you add the fact that you're being told by your government and whoever else that it's good to stay away from people, that you're a danger to your grandparents or whoever else, right? Um, so that's a real problem. And the interesting, I mean, I've been very interested in the effects, both immediate and long-term on children psychologically, not just from lockdowns, from the vaccines, but also from um, from masking for a long time. And, you know, I mean, the, U the UK declared a children's mental health crisis months ago in one of our main teaching hospitals in Hamilton, Ontario, in Canada, we had um, last October, a 300% increase in suicidal uh, behavior uh, that brought young people to the pediatric hospital, to the emergency room. So that's been on my radar for a long time, but it doesn't surprise me what you say about adults having even more significant or enduring effects because, I mean, the thing about children is that they're malleable and that can go both ways, can't it? So it's it's very concerning that for young people who are under the age of say 18, when you take the two years that we've had as a ninth of their lives, or if they're 10, a fifth of their lives, or if they're two, their whole lives. I have a daughter who's two. So her whole, she was born a month after the pandemic was declared. And I've tried come hell or high water to make her life as normal as possible. But one worries every day about the degree to which um, seeing people in masks in grocery stores, something I couldn't do anything about, how that will, will affect her. Um, so children are malleable, right? We worry about the negative effects of that. The thing about malleability is that it goes both ways. So it can have these tremendously detrimental effects on young people when not just their bodies, but their minds, I mean, literally, neurophysiologically, but also uh, in terms of their capacity to develop ideas and, and moral virtues, and intellectual virtues, it can have a negative effect, but also they're resilient in ways that adults aren't. And, um, and, and the interesting thing about adults, the troublesome thing is that there's a guilt factor, I think. For adults who um, wholeheartedly embrace the narrative. And as a result of that, uh, not only encouraged locking down and masking and, and, and vaccination among their loved ones, I won't even say encouraged, but I mean, would, would you know, exclude them from Christmas dinners and uh, because they were a viral threat or because they had the wrong ideas. Not only that, but my goodness, you, if you're waking up now and you realize that you've caused terrible harm to people that you love, that you were, your job was to protect them, and now you're figuring out that everything you did was not only unnecessary, but possibly the most destructive thing you could have done to them in your relationships. How do you come to terms with that level of guilt, especially if you're the kind of person who prides yourself on on being good and signaling your virtue in the right kinds of ways how do you cope with that kind of guilt the children shouldn't be asked to bear that you know i mean there we have sliding scales for competence and for re for reasons um but the adults we we can't just say i don't think i don't think we can just say we can't just defer to the powers that be and say we were misled 
Yes, I think we had a pandemic of coercion and compliance. I've said this, I wrote it in my book. I've said it over and over again on Twitter and interviews everywhere. It was clearly a pandemic of coercion and compliance, but you can't be coerced unless you allow it to happen. This is the thing. You are always an active participant in coercion. And that's what we have to come to terms with, I think, moving forward. True. I mean, we were all given, I mean, I was weeks before you, by the time the pandemic was declared, I was already a skeptic. You see, I was very worried when it went beyond two weeks and we knew that children were not the target death group, that the, the demographic dying were elderly. And then those dying with comorbidities who were not elderly tended to be people with autoimmune issues, obviously. And then obese, diabetic, and, and cardiac patients. Basically, those are the three demographics. Now, what did CNN do? They put every single mm -hmm. guy under the age of 40 who died. And these were anomalies, statistically speaking. Remember that actor from Broadway? His leg had to be amputated. They followed that story as if it were an O.J. Simpson car chase. And I was really angry. Mm -hmm. I mean, and as if it were the rule rather than the exception to it, right? Well, hello, because if you look how they covered the vaccine, which is the demographic that the vaccine is pushing and targeting, especially amongst your students, university students, are the very people who are the least likely to die from the virus. So it was different yardsticks mm -hmm. for the same media. And they were all in cahoots, Julie. Mm -hmm. I, I don't believe for one second mm -hmm. that big tech major media and these government, I'm sorry, idiots who made policies that were harmful, dishonest, and anti-scientific, they were all on the same page and they got on the same page. You take down accounts that shed any light of veracity on ivermectin, because why not? They expected people to be stupid enough to believe that Donald Trump is just an evil guy because he took Invermectin. And of course, you go to MSNBC and CNN, which run even today, a half dozen Trump stories every five minutes, they are unable to contain their rage or be objective about this former president today. Imagine mm -hmm. how they were during lockdown. So it was really horrible, the information we were getting because it was lies and it was partisan lies. So I'm someone who I don't, you know, I'm not in anyone's football club. I read and I want objective truth. So then I went to reports mm -hmm. and I started reading them. I'm sure you did the same and you're, you come away with it early on and you realize this is not happening correctly. This is not being taken seriously because they're using mm -hmm. the grannies and the grandpas as as cover for something else, because they didn't do anything in any country that I know to help the elderly. They really didn't. They used them as an mm -hmm. excuse. They got everyone to comply. Mm -hmm. Then they got people clapping and singing on balconies. You know, it was all very well orchestrated in a way. What happened from there? Because you talk about fear. Then we got the cheerleading going on and you had those Hollywood actors singing, torturing us on YouTube. But then <laughs> you had something very interesting happening. And it's very important that we keep in mind that Bill Gates was on CNN every day. Now, 
let's remember Bill Gates, Microsoft, not Bill Gates studied years pharmacology, Bill Gates studied years. (laughs) Water, water chemistry. Right. Why? What's the link here between Bill Gates and Big Pharma and who invited Bill Gates and Anthony Fauci into the Well, again, though, again, the lesson here is, I mean, all of that, all of those inconsistencies are happening in plain sight. Our failure is that we didn't see it, that most of the people in the world look at Bill Gates and say, yes, Bill Gates, whatever you say about water, yes, Bill Gates, whatever you say about vaccines. Never mind. I mean, and the irony of all of that is in our obsessed credentialist world where we're told to trust the experts, follow the science, or even just hashtag science, right? We're all too willing to believe whoever has the loudest voice the biggest bank account, the most powerful way of, of, of communicating ideas. I, I don't know. I mean, none of that, in my, as I'm saying it, none of that fully explains the power that someone like Bill Gates has over us. And yet he does. You, you mentioned, you know, I mean, this, when you came to believe that something was wrong or when you sort of first got this inkling that something was wrong. And when people ask me that question, I say, well, for one thing, um, everything in science and bioethics in particular proceeds at a snail's pace and so when they started announcing that you know vaccines that were going to be the panacea for this horrendous virus were going to be on the market in a couple of months I said well a radar went off because either something in dif- different in kind is happening than what has happened for the whole history of science or there's something a little bit odd here secondly the homogeneity in terms of the uptake of the narrative is just weird because there is nothing in my belief that is so obviously true that would get every single government in the world, every single major media news outlet in the world on side with it without question, without scrutiny. So it doesn't matter what it is. As soon as you see that kind of homogeneity, you know something there, you know, there's collusion, you know, there's something wrong. And then those are the kind of intuitions that kick in first. And then you say, well, now I need to do some further research because something isn't sitting right here. Um, But when you, you know, you mentioned this, this division and this, um, you know, you either have to be on team Trump or team hating Trump, team Biden or team, you know, I mean, this division that we see in this demonization of certain figures and then certain pharmaceuticals like ivermectin, just this, this demonization. I think that's an effect of the politicization of science. And, the, you know, someone might say, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, pol- politics is about values and about getting along well and living peaceably together. What's wrong with making science about that? Well, I think what's wrong with it is that when you politicize something, you create division in it. And you create a kind of division that that has a chasm between the two sides that's very hard to cross. So as soon as someone identifies themselves as being scientific, they're no longer now able to entertain questions that are characterized as being counter to the mainstream scientific view. If you identify yourself as being a liberal, we should talk, we should elaborate on that because I think what you had to say earlier about leftism and liberalism is quite interesting. But if you identify yourself as a liberal, you aren't going to want to hear anything Trump has to say about 
you know, vaccines or lockdowns. You're not going to want to hear about the research that's coming out of a supposedly conservative university or think tank or for, or 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 being, you know, any kind of private company. So it's that division that we find hard to bridge that prevents us from having true and open and respectful discourse. And that is a much bigger problem in my mind that transcends the particular troubles we're seeing with COVID, though I think those troubles are uh, punctuating this larger problem and they're a symptom of that larger problem. But we need to figure out how we can keep talking to each other, why curiosity is a virtue, why questioning should never be shut down, ever. We need to ensure this will never happen again. And my worry is this, I saw this over and over in my lifetime, the very people who push lockdown, once all comes out in the air, in the sunlight, they'll be saying, mm -hmm. oh, I was never for it. I saw this. I saw this so many times. The war on terror. Well, our prime minister has done that. You know, yeah. uh, Justin yeah. Trudeau, he said, oh, I didn't mean the vaccinated, you know, the unvaccinated people who had good reason for being, no, I didn't mean them. I just meant the crazy people, you know, <laughs> when I said that I hated them. So, <laughs> there's a lot of revisionism going on these days. Quebec is holding public hearings on COVID-19 deaths in facilities. Have you seen about the Heron long-term care residents who died of thirst and malnourishment? Mm -hmm. And this is shameful. Mm -hmm. And Trudeau holds a great bit of responsibility for what happened. You scare populations mm -hmm. like this. And these are the elderly, yeah? The elderly we're supposed to be protecting died of thirst and hunger. I think he should go to prison. I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, I spoke with Jay. I know you had Jay uh, as well. You spoke with him and I had him on the show yes, last, yes. two months ago. And I was like, I think there should be prison. And he was like, well, he, he's more light. <laughs> he's a bit, I know he's a very sick. Well, you know, I think I, I, so I happen to think you're right. But it, again, I think it's a symptom of a symptom of a larger problem. I mean, we, we elected him, we wanted him and we did it a second time. And, and that's a bigger problem. But I do think it's a sign. I mean, the the mistreatment of the elderly in long-term care homes during this COVID era, when we were apparently supposed to be obsessed, focused on caring for people, again, is I think a sign of that myopia. You know, it's that odd, illogical hyper-focus on one thing to the exclusion of others that also matter or arguably matter more. This is what, you know, back to our, our sort of first uh, topic, in our conversation, this is what critical thinking is supposed to help us with. It's supposed to help us see inconsistencies in our thinking. It's supposed to help us imagine possible consequences of our actions without having to act on them so that we can anticipate harms and benefits without having to play them out in the real world. It's supposed to make us less myopic, less self-centered, more comprehensive, more respectful of other people's views. It's supposed to allow us to understand that we can respect a person without accepting his or her beliefs. We can value persons. We can even value um, utterances and the right to speak without agreeing with what is said. And we can continue. You mentioned Jay Badarachia, and we, I think he and I have disagreements about, about the harmfulness of the vaccines, but I think we respect each other as, as scholars, as people, as human beings capable of talking with one another. And that's what um, civil discourse needs to look like if we're to avoid this again. I agree. I agree completely. And we've lost that. And as you pointed out earlier, we lost this before COVID-19 because mm -hmm. I do think lockdown is an opportunity for people to examine how they already locked themselves down beforehand. 
And I say mm -hmm. this with all good intention, because I know when I go on the internet that I'm always seeing the same people there. <laughs> and it's a good mm -hmm. indication that they're always there. Uh, people spend far too much time online. And one of the mm -hmm. human results of that is that we are not trained in the art of disagreement because it's very easy to argue and block and silence or just not see disagreement. And that's mm -hmm. one of the tools that social media allows us, but it's not a very helpful tool in terms of our personalities and intellectual growth. It is very important that we can express our disagreement in an agreeable way, that we can hear the other person, and that we can go back and forth with our ideas without resorting, let's say, to online threats, as we see often when certain topics are discussed, or to simply opting out or what they call flouncing on the discussion. <laughs> One thing I appreciate since lockdown and coming into contact with people more conservative than me has been mm -hmm. that I appreciate their positions and that they were able to put partisanship in the ditch because they knew who they were speaking to and they knew that I would disagree with them on any number of other issues as I did they. But it comes down to the human right to self-expression and we can't have any human right to self-expression if we're locked up in our homes, made to fear each other, made to fear breathing, made to fear opening pizza boxes and whatnot. So mm -hmm. we have, as you mentioned, fear is a huge tool. It's a huge weapon. So too, have we found that speaking, it becomes a weapon in the sense of you have your Twitter account removed, your YouTube account shut down. You mm -hmm. realize all those old adages from centuries before and writers of old saying how language is a virus. In the case of Burroughs, language is something that can fight the sword. So and by like our, our prime minister said that, you know, language is violence itself. <laughs> Not yes. that it leads to violence, not that it is indicative of a violent spirit or any, it is violence. Well, I have very few kind words to say about our <laughs> prime minister, because this is a man that puts rapists in women's prisons because mm -hmm. they say they're women. He has zilch knowledge of human biology and sides with a very misogynistic lobby. So I'm not a big fan of his from that aspect, <laughs> because I do believe that women have the right, even criminals in prison have a right not to be raped. But silly me, I How mean, this controversial is, a, is that? Yeah, that. Well, it's controversial to say that a man has a penis, you can lose your Facebook account for that too. And this is the paradox. I'm thinking of that school in, in southern Ontario with the teacher with big, we'll call them prosthetic breasts. Yes. <laughs> it was in uh, Milton. Yes. Or Trafal Oakville. Oakville Trafal. Yes, yes, yes. And they're related. They're related. COVID and the trans agenda completely related. As I've been saying for months, yes. if you can convince the public that lesbians have penises, then lockdown's a no-brainer. We've been given the red pill over gender identity. And now, of course, when people are told to take a vaccine, well, they're told it's experimental, but most people are not listening to the experimental part because they've been trained in fear for the previous 10 months. They're going to hear vaccine. They're going to hear get out of jail card. They're going to hear, finally, I'll have money in my bank account. That's what they hear. And like you, I mm. too was mm -mm, the same a vaccine. <laughs> Vaccines 
don't need boosters. Like I change my mm -hmm. underwear less frequently. No, I'm joking. I, I change my underwear every day, everyone. But <laughs> the reality is that this is insane that we were told a vaccine in the same sentence as boosters every 60, 90 days, whatever it was estimated. Then the reality comes out. Now we have studies that show a lot of the nonsense to start with. Let's go to what Florida recently announced. Can you go over that? So, um, well, one of the things that happened in Florida is that the state surgeon general uh, issued a, a statement warning that the new new mRNA uh, vaccines are are harmful, right? And I mean, Florida, it's so funny because Canada, I think, has long prided itself on being the, the civil liberties capital of the world, right? And, and, and we probably have a bit of an intellectual hubris. And, you know, if, if research is coming out, we're right on it, and we're not going to be behind, heaven forbid. Well, now this, this statement was issued from a, you know, backward place called Tallahassee, Florida, right? And, um, and uh, you know, the Florida Department of Health conducted an analysis uh, and showed that there's an 84% increase in the relative incidence of cardiac-related death among young males. So 18 to 39, I think, 28, 28 days following mRNA vaccination. And this is not, you know, I mean, this is information that's been, we might say, hiding in plain sight for months and, and months now, right? The, um, I mean, the, the, our government's mandated that people take these vaccines. And if we talk about the Pfizer vaccines, for example, well, the Pfizer trials never studied whether or not the vaccine, I mean, they, there's a question about safety, but they never even studied whether the vaccines would stop transmission. Well, they didn't have the time to do it. That's the problem. And yet what everybody believes is that, I mean, what our prime minister said is, you know, don't think you're getting on a plane or train next to a vaccinated person. I mean, never mind the fact that if the person's vaccinated, they should be all right, regardless of how, you know, virally infectious you are. But never mind. Um, <laughs> but what we believe is that we, you know, there are always these kind of three word phrases um, about, you know, keeping others safe. And we believe that we need to purify ourselves and then we will not transmit to other people. That's the narrative. That's the story. We need to keep telling ourselves to be a good member of society, to keep people getting boosted because we believe doesn't matter what the evidence shows. We've been conditioned to believe that being good consists in following orders, full stop. As a little anecdote, I was actually just watching Sound of Music the other day with my daughter. And you might think, what in the world does this have to do with what's going on now? But it's her favorite movie. So we watch it over and over again. And I was really struck by, you know, as the movie goes on, the presence of Nazism becomes more and more palpable and, and I think resonates more and more with what's happening today. But in one of the final scenes when the family's about to perform at this musical, um, uh, you know, concert, and uh, the Nazi officer comes along looking for Captain Von Trapp and Max, who's the singing, you know, guru teacher. Uh, he says, well, what he says to the children, well, what's important these days is that we just get along with each other. And that line, I mean, that movie is from the 50s, right? That line just stopped me in my tracks because I think that's what most people believe now. What's important is that we follow rules, get along, fly under the radar. We saw what happened then when that was the modus operandi of most people. We see what's happening now 
when we decide it's a good idea to repeat, I guess we're not making a conscious decision about it, but we're repeating the same idea that, so when we start talking and I, I, you know, when you started talking about, but the evidence doesn't show it doesn't, but that doesn't get any traction in the minds of the average person. We, we don't even have a little compartment in our mind reserved for new and incoming evidence, right? We don't even have a file, a, a spot, an empty file in our filing cabinets for new and incoming evidence because we don't care. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. The media makes it such that we can't care because they're right, over-saturating right. us with fear on the one hand, quick fixes on the other, social distancing, masks. Wait, let's talk about masks because even before COVID-19, there were mask studies. Masks mm -hmm. of the type that most people were wearing to include those blue things from the hospital do not do a thing. And now in many EU countries, you still have to wear them if you go into hospitals or health clinics. To me, I compare this to having to take the host and perform a theater of religion for those who want to believe it. But why am I implicated in this theater? Where is science? Because it's not there. It's so interesting because we have, I think, ritualized the wearing of masks, right? And the human history is, I mean, I think there probably is no culture, no civilization without its own very distinct set of rituals. And whether they have to do with um, ceremonies or the way we celebrate things or something very simple, like whether we take our shoes off and we enter someone's home and shake hands to close a business deal, we define ourselves and show what we're worth to other people uh, by how we engage with the accepted rituals and mask wearing has become one of those things. And we don't, I think, have probably time to go into the significance of ritual, but it is, um, it, it defines us as a member of our tribe, right? And we're no longer in the prehistoric period where our tribes were small and, and, and physically distinct from one another and we could know everyone within the tribe. And we really were literally fighting for our lives because if we, you know, we did something stupid and got found out by a competing tribe, they'd come and kill us. Or if we, um, you know, didn't do our job to go and find food, well, then we were a useless member of the tribe. But we have tribes today and trying to figure out what those are they're much more global than they ever used to be because we can communicate with and know each other across the world in ways that we never were able to but i think this mask wearing is the ritualization of our membership in the tribe that we feel is meaningful and that we believe will keep us safe and the irony the devastating sadness in all of this is that it's those beliefs that willingness to sacrifice everything that we should have held you know that integrity should have made us hold on tight to that is putting us in graver danger than we ever could have imagined possible i hear you my big worry now is that we are seeing that the great barrington declarants were pretty spot right. on about yeah. targeted protection we're seeing 
that masks are unnecessary, but as I mentioned, no one seems to care about the science. Let's just keep bowing down to that altar. We have the news about not just one, there are dozens of studies that are showing the real harms of these vaccines, quote unquote vaccines, to certain demographics, young demographics, who are very unlikely to be harmed by this virus. Mm -hmm. And can you discuss also the recent study on the boosters? The, um, the one by the bioethicists about for young adults. Yes, sorry. Yeah, so this was, and five ethical arguments against men. Yeah, this, this was really amazing. I mean, this was, so this is a paper um, that was published in, I think it was the 12th of September of this year by really a litany of some of the world's top scientists and bioethicists. So uh, in my neck of the woods, Trudeau Lemons from the University of Toronto, who's from the Faculty of Law, but really a bioethics specialist, um, a specialist from Harvard Medical School, Vinay Prasad from San Francisco, Johns Hopkins, uh, Oxford, list goes on and on. I think there were about eight or nine contributors to this study. And really what the issue they're engaging with is um, the ethical validity of enforcing COVID-19 vaccine booster mandates on university campuses. So they were looking at young people, again, in that 18 to 29 age group. And it's a very scientifically motivated ethical analysis. So they aren't making abstract concepts or abstract claims about, you know, why autonomy is a prima facie good. They're really engaging with the data to do a cost benefit harm. So they they said they estimate that 22 to 30 so 22,000 to 30,000 previously uninfected adults aged 18 to 29 would have to be boosted to prevent one covid hospitalization. And in order to prevent that one COVID hospitalization, because of that large number, 22 to 30,000 who have to get boosted, they anticipate within that population 18 to 98 serious adverse events, including a number of myocarditis cases in males that are associated with the booster. And I think it was something like 13 to 3,200 cases of grade three plus reactogenicity, which interferes with daily activities. These are, I mean, I think the point that they're trying to make in their abstract is that these adverse events are not mild and that myocarditis, for example, is not temporary, which is something that our colleges and professional bodies and physicians seem to want to say. I can tell you anecdotally that um, I hear from students, university students, on a weekly, sometimes daily basis, who are suffering exactly these kinds of effects from the university that's closest to me that I worked at, Western University and other universities in my area and, and, and in states as well. And um, these are people who were perfectly healthy before getting vaccinated or boosted and now can't play sports, now who have racing heartbeats. One uh, gentleman I talked to the other day has to have a, had a defibrillator installed in his home and um, you know, some, this is devastating to say, but a couple of these people witnessed people drop dead beside them at pubs and restaurants over the last week or two. I mean, this is this is what. Thank goodness this article came out when it did. Um, I, I hope that <laughs> the hope is that it, it gets the traction that it needs. You know. Um, So the authors anyway go on to conclude that these mandates are unethical because we've had no risk-benefit assessment for this age group. The drug companies didn't do it during the trials. 
the you know Health Canada in our country didn't do it, the FDA didn't do it, the CDC didn't do it. That these vaccine mandates may, and if their numbers are right, certainly will result in a net expected harm to individual young people. So then there's a troubling ethical question about whether or not it's reasonable to sacrifice anyone's health for the sake of a possible benefit that we now know not to be supported by the evidence. There is no collective benefit from these boosters, and we're sacrificing people to achieve this imaginary fantastical benefit. Well, here's a proposition for you, Julie. This is something that's been on my head for pretty much a few months at this point. I keep thinking about this because Jay told me in the summer that everyone knew that there was no clear knowledge about what these vaccines would do, that Mm. they basically rolled them out. Biden and others said they'll be effective to stop the spread, but they didn't have evidence of that. The evidence came when they were rolled out. And here's my thing. And I'm wondering if anyone's going to do a class action lawsuit, actually. I think it should be done. I think that we, the public, the people, were made unwilling guinea pigs by this experimental nomenclature used around the, the vaccine and the boosters. And that we became this de facto focus group of study because Mm -hmm. they didn't do the eight to 10 years of trials. So we were the trial study. And I think that this needs to never happen again. If you see what I'm saying, instead of doing that regular advertising, get a a lot of 20 somethings, university students that get paid, you know, those studies (laughs) and people at least have informed consent, but we Mm -hmm. had this double whammy. We were given mandates and no one informed consent. So we were forced into being guinea pigs for the very big pharma that signed up very long and wordy contracts with national governments so that those governments would say, we're going to have your back. No one will sue you. We'll make our citizens take your vaccines. I'm shorthanding this. Mm-hmm. We'll make our citizens take these vaccines and we'll shoulder all the legal claims on mm-hmm. our end. That's mm-hmm. what's happened no? Absolutely. And even if that were true, I think there's a question about whether the truth is going to come out and these companies and the governments that supported them and the media that supported them will be held to account. But even if they are, in some sense, as an individual, your 22-year-old son just dropped dead in his chemistry class. Maybe Pfizer gives you $3 million. Those are incommensurate goods. You've lost your child. You know, I, I fear that I fear the truth will never come out, but then my secondary fear is that even if it does, and even if they're held to account, it doesn't, there's no way to erase the harms. That, that's where we're at in society. There is no way to correct for and erase the harms that have been done. The best we can do is to identify them, take accountability for them, and move forward with a promise to do better. But there's no erasing it. There's no, you know, people are dead. Babies are dead. Um, This is the harsh truth that nobody wants to hear. People's children are dying every day. There's a woman, I was fortunate enough to be able to attend the citizens hearing in Toronto a few months ago, uh, supported by the Canadian COVID Care Alliance. And there was a woman there who's had, at that time, and I, I haven't followed her story since, but at that time had seven strokes post-vaccination. And every night she goes to bed, she leaves herself a little note and says, this is my name, this is where I live, and I matter to someone. 
because she's worried, you know, she's worried she'll wake up and not know that. This is the devastating harms that we're doing to people. That's right. And all of this, because we were told to exchange our rights of happiness, our financial security, our freedoms, everything. Everything. For the grandparents who might have a few weeks, months, or years left. And this is the discussion. I know it sounds nasty. Some people have mentioned this before on the show, but we should have had ethical discussions, philosophers on the TV discussing societal triage. Well, we can't have that because we would have had, you know, goodness, if people heard this conversation, they might have made some sort of informed decision. We can't have that. 